Hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Matt Page, who works as a music therapist and psychotherapist. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing a healthcare professional each episode, asking questions that you want the answers to and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female and my pronouns are she, hers, and I am lactose intolerant. And I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I'm a cis white woman and my pronouns are she, her. And I decided today that I'm going to keep wearing a mask in the supermarket for a long time, maybe even years or permanently. I do kind of like wearing masks. I like not getting a cold all the time. And I like dudes not telling me to smile when I'm picking fresh ginger out of the grocery store file which may or may not have happened to me before so I've been with you and people have told you to smile so oh I know it happens that happened once on the street yeah and I responded to her and she got very aggressive with me that's the first time a woman is <laughs> oh my goodness um I didn't know if you knew if I was lactose intolerant or not I'm sorry for almost laughing while you were talking <laughs> I now have this expectation that I will laugh every time. So okay. I'm trying not to look at you and it's, I, I mean, successful. I said it because I do eat a lot of cheese. So I probably eat way more cheese than you would expect for someone who's lactose intolerant. We eat cheese together often. Yes. I have okay, cheese so. lunch, which is one of my favorite things. <laughs> um, my husband and I used to every, we used to live in old city, Philadelphia, uh, we used to walk every Saturday morning to Reading Terminal Market, eat breakfast there, and then get cheese for lunch, <laughs> bring it back home, and then have cheese lunch. And we like made, you know, we started to recognize the people working at Downtown Cheese, and they kind of knew what we liked. And it was really, it was a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad that you're able to still have a nice relationship with cheese, despite the intolerance. I don't know if it's a nice relationship, but it's a relationship. (laughs) When you take the lactose intolerance test, it's like a three hour long test. They let you watch a movie. So I watched James Bond. And what happens is every, every like 20 or so minutes, they come in and take your breath to see if you're lactose intolerant. It also really sucks if you are lactose intolerant because they just give you concentrated lactose. What are they measuring? They take your breath? Yeah. Something in your breath. I don't remember what it was. I mean, a good thing they did. I think they used to have to take blood every 20 minutes, which would not have worked for me. Um, but yeah, so I was in pain watching, I think like Casino Royale. And nice. every time they came in, it was a sex scene, which was just like awkward and mm-hmm. weird. Like, I'm sorry. This is the movie you gave me to watch. Yeah, I mean, doesn't he always sleep with at least two women? 
Yeah, I guess it was like every 20 minutes. So it's that like, movie. It's kind of, I wonder if they were doing that on purpose. But the stealing your breath thing, that feels like something a villain did in a <laughs> young adult novel that we all read. Not Harry Potter, but something close. That's great. And I'll think about it later for our housekeeping. I'll find out what it is they measure in your breath for our next up. But I yeah, think, I mean, I think we'll all be waiting. Yeah, with bated breath. <laughs> the wonderful pun. Uh, <laughs> We should look up the history to that phrase. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's bad. I'm sure it's great. Um, also, Flag Day today, the day that we're recording this. Oh yeah. Thank you for your service, flags. I didn't even I actually went to a flag day uh exhibition at the uh <laughs> the Museum of the American Revolution this weekend. I didn't even think I would be celebrating <laughs> Flag Day, but I did. I that sounds very nice. It was that also sounds again on brand for the American Revolutionary History Museum. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm looking up the history of flag day. I don't I think I asked oh. my parents and they were like, it's to celebrate the flag. But like, what does okay. that mean? <laughs> so it's apparently many Americans celebrate it by displaying the red, white, and blue. I guess flag, it doesn't say, but red, white, and blue are capitalized, which makes me think that's what we should be calling the flag in front of their homes and businesses. But we do that every day because because exceptionalism. So I don't, we should, this day should, it's clearly celebrated all year round. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Any housekeeping? Um, I don't think so. Our Patreon should be up by this episode. So hopefully it's there. Nice. Yes. And we, you can certainly listen to us on our website or on Stitcher or on Spotify. I don't have any housekeeping, but I do have a reference to previous housekeeping. Okay. Is it Lucifer related? Because no, I, okay, I, guess. I I watched Back to the Future part two last night and I plan on watching the third tonight and going a little bit past my bedtime. Okay. So my references will be correct from here on out. I'll I'll look I'll have Wikipedia open every time you talk about it now. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, stay tuned after the break for a history lesson. Nice. <laughs> I had to do it so <laughs> cash, you know? No, good. I thought it was like putting me to sleep. So thank you. It's a nice lull. <laughs> Talk about putting me to sleep was that flag exhibit. It was so dark in there. <laughs> Should have saved this for the, for the... No, we can keep it. Okay, now okay. really stay tuned for our history lesson after a quick break. <laughs> And now it's time for our history lesson. The history lesson is compiled facts in the form of a narrative describing history, good and bad, in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Our sources today include meadowridge.com, Wikipedia, aplaceformom.com, dbhibs.org, or dbhibs.org probably, Music Therapy's Development in Mental Health Care, A Historical Consideration of Early Ideas and Intersecting Agents by Triana McCaffrey, and theinquirer.com. 
trigger warning, there is brief discussion about abuse and neglect of the mentally ill. So if you would like to skip over that, feel free to fast forward 12 minutes approximately. Don't hold me to that. First, we will start with some definitions because I, I'm going to guess like most people, not everybody understands the many variations of care for the elderly that are available in the United States. There are so a the lot. first one. Yes. First one is called a skilled nursing facility or more commonly referred to as a sniff by therapists, social workers, nurses, and everybody that works in these kind of places or refers to these places. A skilled nursing facility is an inpatient rehabilitation and medical treatment center staffed with trained medical professionals. They provide the medically necessary services of licensed nurses, physical and occupational therapists, speech pathologists, and audiologists. Skilled nursing facilities give patients round-the-clock assistance with healthcare and activities of daily living or ADLs. Similar to nursing homes, but without permanent residency. Now onto nursing homes. They are a facility for the residential care of elderly or disabled people. May also be referred to as skilled nursing facilities, long-term care facilities, old people's homes, care homes, rest homes, convalescent homes, or convalescent care. Fun fact, my first waitressing job was at a nursing home. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Rehab facility. A facility licensed under state laws to provide intensive rehabilitative services. An inpatient rehabilitation facility will be able to provide more intensive rehabilitation than a skilled nursing facility or home-based rehabilitation service. So, for example, a patient who has a knee replacement may need care in a sniff during the rehab process, whereas a patient who suffered a stroke or spinal cord injury may need care at an inpatient rehab facility. So more intense injuries and more intense healing. And I will say also sometimes rehab facilities are in the same place as yes. a nursing homes or long-term care facilities. The place that I worked at was both. There was a short-term and a long-term uh, side of the facility. Yeah, that's a really good point. Either different wings or different floors, right? Yes. Okay. Now, assisted living and memory care units. Assisted living and memory care offer many of the same services, including housing, meals, and help with ADLs, like bathing, grooming, and using the toilet. However, memory care also specializes in caring for seniors with memory loss, Alzheimer's disease, and other forms of dementia. This means memory care facilities and staff are well-equipped to help seniors with dementia maintain cognitive skills, a sense of self, and a quality of life for as long as possible. And these two are also sometimes combined in the same facility, often on like a locked unit or like a, a very separate wing of the building. Yes, yes. Long-term structured residence. LTSR, it's a highly structured therapeutic residential mental health treatment facility designed to treat individuals 18 and older who are ineligible for hospitalization, but who can receive, can receive adequate care. LTSRs serve individuals who have severe and persistent mental illnesses and who have reached maximum benefit from the mental health resources available elsewhere in the community or hospital. This is generally evidenced by multiple treatment failures in less structured community or residential programs extended acute hospitalizations, and current or prior placement in a state hospital. LTSRs are the only mental health residential level of care to which an individual may be involuntarily committed by the court. Additionally, the LTSR regulations allow for the sites to be locked. All right, so next we'll be talking about the closure of the Philadelphia State Hospital at Byberry in Northeast Philadelphia and why the need for long-term care was established in our great city. 
The institution began as a small work farm for the mentally ill. In 1907, it was established as the Byberry Mental Hospital and originally followed the theory of Dr. Benjamin Rush that mental illness was a disease and could be cured with proper treatment, but that the mentally diseased should be kept away from normal people until they were actually cured. And we will remember Dr. Beth Benjamin Rush from a previous episode who enjoyed, who while he was great, father of psychiatry, signed the Declaration of Independence, also uh, advocate for lobotomies and hydrotherapy. I remember. We're going to hear about him a lot. Well, maybe not more today, but later. Many of the original patients were transferred from Philadelphia General Hospital, which closed in 1977. All personnel were sent to other hospitals and patients sent to Norristown State Hospital as well. The hospital turned over, the hospital was turned over to the state in 1936 and was renamed the Philadelphia State Hospital at Byberry. Conditions in the hospital during this time were poor with allegations of patient abuse and inhumane treatment made frequently. The situation came to national attention between 1945 and 1946, when conscientious objector Charlie Lord took covert photos of the institution and the conditions inside while serving there as an orderly. The 36 black and white photos documented issues, including dozens of naked men huddling together and human excrement lining facility hallways. The photos were shown to a number of people including then First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, who subsequently pledged her support in pursuing national mental health reforms. In May 1946, Lord's photos were published in an issue of Life, creating a national, quote, mass uproar. In his 1948 book, The Shame of the States, Albert Deutsch described the horrid conditions he observed. Quote, as I passed through some of Byberry's wards, I was reminded of the pictures of the Nazi concentration camps. I entered a building swarmed with naked humans, herded like cattle and treated with less concern, pervaded by the fetid odor, so heavy, so nauseating that the stench seemed to have almost a physical existence of its own, end quote. I don't know if you two remember, but we watched a movie during grad school in which an, a behavioral health tech had a hidden camera on his glasses. I, we must have watched it in ethics class or something like that, but it, I mean, this was... We watched that probably seven years ago, so it must have been in the last 20 years. So very similar kind of, um, very similar situation in which this place was essentially outed. And obviously we are still having to deal with maybe not the same conditions, but similar, similar need to bring some of these things to the surface. Absolutely. During the 1960s, the hospital began a continuous downsizing that would end in its closure. During the mid-1980s, the hospital came under the scrutiny when it was learned that violent criminals were being kept on the hospital's forensic ward, N8-2A. In 1985, the hospital failed a state inspection and was accused of misleading the inspection team. Reports of patient abuse were still rampant through the 1980s. Another state inspection team was sent to evaluate the hospital in early 1987. By the summer of 1985, five of the Philadelphia State Hospital's top officials were promptly fired after the Byberry facility once again failed the state inspection. On December 7, 1987, a press conference was held to announce the closure of the Philadelphia State Hospital at Byberry. The team's most recently performing investigations described the conditions as, quote, atrocious and, quote, irreversible. Though originally supposed to close the following year, patient issues delayed the process. Most importantly, two released patients were found dead in the Delaware River in two successive days after the release. The hospital officially closed in June 1990, 
with the remaining patients and staff having been transferred to Norristown State Hospital or local community centers. Music therapist Dennis Fisher said of the time following his employment terminating after Byberry closed, I was deinstitutionalized myself. He now works at Behavioral Health Training and Education Network in Philadelphia, BH10. BH10 is committed to supporting Philadelphia's behavioral health system by planning, coordinating, and providing quality educational experiences. These educational experiences are geared to a wide range of audiences, including individuals and their family members. Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disability Services, DBHIDS, staff members, behavioral health service provider organizations, and other human services and community-based organizations. So a quick pop culture reference. I thought that Byberry was the hospital that they referenced in American Horror Story Asylum. It was not. Oh. That was actually Penhurst Asylum, which is in this, the town that I live in right now. It's two miles behind oh, my house, wow. and it's now a haunted house. But I felt the need to say that because I live in the same town as it. Uh, LTSR history. So the LTSRs, or long-term structured residents, were originally envisioned with the closure of Byberry and were used and were to be used for individuals transitioning from Byberry who would have required state hospital level of care. LTSRs provide in-house therapeutic groups, activities, and recreation. It is important to consider that the LTSRs differ from hospitals and that they are not permitted the use of restraint. LTSRs are staffed 24 hours per day. And I will say that a lot of hospitals are trying to move away from restraints like 100%. Uh, yeah, a lot of them just do physical holds now and chemical restraints, I think, are illegal yeah. in, in case of like actual fear of like huge bodily harm or death. And I mean, even my the restraint training that I had was in itself traumatic, just like having the training. Absolutely. Um, I can't imagine what it would be to be restrained. To be accepted into an LTSR, the following guidelines must be followed. One, the individual must be 18 years or older. Two, the individual does not meet the criteria for acute inpatient psychiatric hospitalization, extended acute care, or nursing home level of care. Three, the individual has demonstrated the need for highly structured, supportive, and supervised environment. Four, the individual cannot be appropriately treated at a less structured setting due to the need for 24-hour supervision medication management and monitoring, and ongoing therapeutic interventions. Five, individual must have a current serious mental illness, SMI, diagnosis from the DSM-5, which is the, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, DSM-5 from a licensed psychiatrist that causes significant functional and psychosocial impairment. Six, a licensed psychiatrist must recommend LTSR placement as the most clinically appropriate and least restrictive level of care. Seven, the individual's behavior does not require the use of chemical or physical restraints or use of seclusion. Eight, if the individual has a substance use history, he or she must be substance-free for at least 12 months prior to the date of referral. Nine, the individual must be able to reasonably participate in LTSR programming, including but not limited to agreeing to follow the program guidelines, accepting the supervision provided, and engaging in treatment like individual therapy, psychiatric appointments, goal planning, etc. So these are all pretty hard, pretty hard standards to meet. Yeah. Considering what people are dealing with regularly. 
And as someone who's worked on a treatment team with a psychiatrist and inpatient acute care, they are very hesitant to recommend LTSR for that reason and because there's often wait lists or uh, people can be rejected and sometimes have to apply again. Yeah. Which can be a pretty traumatizing experience in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Now onto the history of nursing and rehabilitation centers. Rehabilitation hospitals were created to meet a perceived need for facilities which were less costly on an as-needed basis than general hospitals, but which provided a higher level of professional therapy such as speech therapy, occupational therapy, and physical therapy uh, that can be obtained in a skilled nursing care facility. In the United States, rehabilitation hospitals are designed to meet the requirements imposed upon them by the Medicare administration and to bill at the rates allowed by Medicare for such a facility. Medicare allows a lifetime total of 100 days stay in a rehabilitation hospital per person. A rehabilitation hospital can only be accessed following a stay as an inpatient in a general hospital, which has lasted for a certain number of days. The general hospital will evaluate the patient to determine if the patient will benefit from rehabilitation services. A positive determination will be made if the patient is deemed to require a certain level of therapies. If a positive determination is made, a report concerning the patient's needs will be sent to the rehabilitation hospital, which has the discretion to admit or not admit the patient. If the patient is transferred to the rehabilitation hospital, his or her medical records and a recommended treatment plan will be transmitted with the patient. The treatment plan will include daily therapies, except on weekends. Some rehabilitation hospitals have physicians on staff and others do not. Can we, can we talk about that yes. I, that and just how it's a little it's a little wild i i and i guess they mean just like medical physicians and not psychiatrists or whatever but the fact that places are able to not have a physician on staff who's usually in charge of the treatment team is it's pretty odd i do believe the facility i worked for had a physician there only some days of the week i think yeah i think usually there's maybe like a, a nurse practitioner maybe as a replacement yeah. or maybe like i mean just somebody being labeled as a charge nurse mm-hmm. but yeah on to mental health and music therapy the american music there the american music therapy association amta has indicated that the earliest known reference to music therapy appeared in the 1789 article titled music physically considered This article provides an early account of the therapeutic use of music in the alleviation of mental distress in medieval times. The case of Flemish painter Hugo van der Goes is reported. He experienced an episode of mental disturbance during which he is said to have regarded himself as a lost soul and attempted to take his own life. According to Offwees, a chronicler within the community, van der Goes was treated with music by Prior Thomas, who recalled the biblical story of how Saul experienced relief when David played the harp. Van der Goes treatment took the form of regular doses of melody playing in order to dispel his delusions. I never knew that. That was so crazy to... That is pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, to know that music therapy had been used that long ago. Yeah. And it's neat that it was kind of brought and broadly accepted in something that was religious based as well. Yeah. Considering the church's relationship with music. Mm, Absolutely. The rationale for such a treatment was that music could work against demonic powers through the stimulation of the senses. Although this attempt at therapy was thought to have been unsuccessful, it does mark a period of history when a naturalist 
discourse on mental illness began to emerge and when music's capacity to stimulate or sedate the accidents or emotions of the soul merited merited its consideration in the treatment of particular forms of illness. In the latter part of the 18th century, there were accounts of playing music in hospitals and asylums across Britain and the USA as choirs, bands, and orchestras performed to various different patient groups. The mid-19th century saw attempts to systematically introduce music within the asylum setting. Kramer's essay on soul music in German psychiatry recounts Illinau, a 19th century German mental hospital that placed particular significance upon the use of music and treatment. M music pertained to the treatment of Germut, a German term that has been used, a German term that has been defined as a capacity to unbend and bring oneself into harmony with one's surroundings. Physicians at Illinois regarded Gemut to be a phenomenal entity or organ that unified the body and the soul, which is the coolest thing I've read in a couple of days. Mental illness was accepted as an affliction of Gemut, and music was used as an aesthetic and environmental component to re-synergize body and soul. This was premised on the idea of musicalizing the unskilled or incapacitated. The 19th century saw sustained interest in the topic of music as a form of therapy. Dr. Benjamin Rush, there he is again. again, a physician and psychiatrist and signer of the Declaration of Independence, was a strong supporter of using music to treat illness. And two of his students who we've also talked about, Alti and Matthews, both wrote upon the therapeutic value of music in their medical dissertations. I believe they were educated at Penn by Dr. Benjamin Rush, but we may need to check on that. In 1878, a set of experiments on patients' reactions to professional music making in the asylum was reported in the World Newspaper, which was said to mark the first government-sponsored music therapy program in the United States. Just over two decades later, the prominent neurologist James Leonard Corning wrote an article in the, med in the medical record outlining the first systematic experimentation of using music to treat people with mild behavioral, emotional, and sleep disorders. As the term music therapy began to emerge in healthcare contexts during the late 19th and early 20th century, it was strongly contested for reasons that it was subsidiary practice and merited only temporary therapeutic outcomes. At that time, many theoretical papers that supported the use of music therapy in healthcare did so by referencing positive historical accounts of music and healing to justify the use of intention. This last paragraph feels like this is still happening for music therapy, right? That's a lot of what we saw. Like we need evidence-based practice and folks Absolutely. are saying we have an entire history of evidence to base. I know that's not yeah. how it works, but we're in a cycle. The medical profession's mixed responses towards such explanations may well have derived from the arrival of the experimental method that drove the need for rigorous and systematic, quote, evidence to justify the use of interventions in medical contexts. So all of a sudden they were interested in research is essentially why it was, it was being so heavily criticized. This is reflected in a call by Latman, a medical reviewer, for caution in embracing the concept of music therapy too quickly so as to avoid being labeled as a charlatan or witch doctor. This in itself is thought-provoking, given the early and enduring records of music's relationship with shamanism, and it suggests that music therapy may have felt the heavy weight of dominant model upon its shoulders as it sought to define itself within the systematic and empirical realm of medical practice. A leading figure in the field of psychiatry was Dr. Ira Altschuler, who we talked about in a previous episode a Ukrainian-born psychiatrist who extensively used music as a therapeutic agent in treating patients and is regarded by many as a pioneer music therapist. 
He was renowned for his innovative work at Detroit's Eloise Hospital, where he worked as director of group therapy for over 25 years. Altshuler believed that there was a primitive biological link between humans and music, that when properly used, music could deeply affect one's emotions. He promoted the use of the ISO principle by which the current emotional state of the individual was matched with analogous music so that a transition to a more desirable mood could take place through the modification of different musical components such as rhythm, dynamics, melody, and tempo. Altshuler often incorporated songs with a moral or inspirational message into, into sessions. The early years of his directorship of Eloise's therapy program saw the recruitment of hospital musicians who were provided with a set of guidelines to instruct them as to how to work in the institutional setting in question. Although these were written over 70 years ago, it is striking that many of these points are still closely aligned to guiding principles of current day group practice. And they are as follows. Choose a quiet area on the ward and let clients naturally form a group, be especially welcoming of new members. The therapist is the leader, but do not hesitate to use the more talented and outgoing patients as part of the therapeutic experience. Make an effort to encourage the participation of ward staff and attending physicians. If there are visitors present, ask them to join the group. Select a variety of therapeutic musical experiences, including singing, rhythm band activities, listening to music, and dancing. Encourage all patients to participate in the music experiences. Use their first names. Maintain a good attitude toward the client. Avoid disruptions if at all possible. Minimize telephone calls, patients being removed from groups by ward staff, and the clanging of dishes. Clients shouldn't be encouraged to dress nicely. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> the use of a trio and or piano is fine. Use no brass as this can be upsetting to the patient. And the therapist should act naturally. Yeah, all of these are still completely applicable. And obviously, you're not going to dress for Sunday church, come into group, but you certainly, we encourage everybody to come dressed. And I know Matt, our guest, is going to have something to say about using brass music uh, therapeutically. So oh. uh, join us after the break as we get to talk to Matt about music therapy and psychotherapy. All right, welcome back. Today we have Matt Page with us. His pronouns are he, him, and he is a board-certified music therapist and a graduate of Drexel's Creative Arts Therapy Program, like Sarah and myself. Ooh. He has dedicated his time studying mental health and has been a music therapist within a nursing and rehabilitation center, as well as a psychotherapist at a long-term structured residence for adults experiencing chronic mental illness. His practice includes creating an inclusive space to amplify others' voices and fostering self-empowerment. Matt's approach is trauma-informed, intersectional, and strives for cultural humility. In his personal life, Matt adores coffee and his life partner of over 15 years, is a self-described nerd, sings in an all-male chorus, plays trumpet and piano, and is a cat daddy, ASMR enthusiast, disc golfer, hiker, and biker. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about this. Yeah, thank you for being yeah. here. We are equally excited. And I, your intro is the favorite that we've read thus far. It was so heartwarming and nice. And yeah, so I, as a I, cat I, parent, I get it. 
I love all, all the little ingredients that go along with intros. So uh, yeah, cat daddy. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right, Matt, tell us a little bit about your work. So yeah, I, I uh, currently am working at a long-term structured residence, um, a smaller uh, place that is a secured facility. Um, and uh, the residents there, uh, you know, have uh, different diagnoses of um, mostly like formal thought disorders, uh, you know, schizophrenia, uh, you know, PTSD that also kind of going back to the, the history talk, like including, you know, institutional trauma, uh, you know, experience uh, different forms of racism and just system, you know, systemic injustices. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the, uh, a lot of the residents there, they, you know, they might be experiencing forms of negative symptoms that, you know, can include uh, depression, that can include, uh, you know, feeling withdrawn or sometimes self-isolating. Um, they can also, you know, experience a lot of positive symptoms, a lot of, you know, different hallucinations, auditory, visual, um, you know, delusional beliefs, intrusive thoughts, things, things like that. And um, in terms of just like the the day-to-day -day life, um, I'll speak a little bit like before the pandemic, uh, you know, there was a lot of like community opportunities there. Um, you know, community in integration was really an integral part of um, of the, the the place, and is coming back. You know, as as things are opening up a little bit more, and people are vaccinated, um, and you know, we just go out and and do enjoyable things that everybody likes to do. You know, go to a Phillies game, go to the museum, um, check out the Philadelphia Flower Show. Uh, so just really a lot of like just a community experience, you know, to, to, to feel comfortable, um, you know, in, in a community setting to feel safe. Uh, those are, those are really big kind of key points to, um, to the experience of living in a long-term structured residence. Um, and outside of that, you know, we, we tie those experiences into group sessions, uh, you know, focusing on different skills, social skills, coping skills, mindfulness, um, skills and um, as well as individual sessions. So uh, as, as uh, my, my official title there is psychotherapist too. Um, I am the music therapist, board certified music therapist there. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I do, you know, facilitate different music therapy groups, um, sometimes talk therapy groups, individual sessions. Um, I am, I, I facilitate recovery team for individuals that is um, we go off of the, the recovery model of cognitive therapy, uh, which kind of draws in, um, a resident's, uh, aspirations and goals. Like they're, you know, they're a part of the team. Um, they have equal say, if not even more say as to like what they want to focus on and, and, and how they want to, uh, you know, shape their livelihood. Uh, so, you know, we take that, you know, really into consideration with, with goals and objectives there. Uh, just a lot of, uh, work with, uh, recovery plans. And, um, you know, we, I, I know the ADLs has, was just talked about a little bit, you know, we do have an assessment called the DLA 20, which is like daily living activities as a 20, um, questionnaire. And, um, it just kind of incorporates like a holistic, um, uh, approach to, you know, different areas of living that can be health practices that can be, uh, coping skills, problem solving, community resources. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I also, um, you know, some of the goals, just thinking about what, what um, some of the folks uh, 
uh, strive towards um, is, you know, more community involvement. Some people uh, go to day programs, which offer different kind of, uh, you know, services and activities throughout the day. Uh, so, you know, some of the residents might learn travel training, you know, uh, checking out SEPTA, seeing what it's about. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, like maybe occupational training as well as um, there, there was one part in there too uh, called CRRs, which is like, I believe it stands for uh, community residential rehab, which is uh, a more independent living facility where there's still uh, medical staff like, you know, uh, um, there to help with any kind of like, uh, you know, medication, things like that, but it's, it's not a secure facility. It's, it's more, has more independence with it. Um, yeah. So that, that's, <laughs> that kind of encapsulates a little bit of, of what I, I do to on a day-to-day -day basis. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of things to do. <laughs> that was such a good <laughs> <Yeah>. answer. <laughs> Um, I have a couple of follow-up questions. Well, first, Sarah and I know this, but I don't think all of our listeners know this. What does a music therapy group look like? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, you know, music therapy is a therapy in which, you know, we, we use the experience of music to address a person's needs. You know, a person's needs can be emotional needs. It could be cognitive needs. It could be just any any variety of of need. And um, so, music therapy in the moment, um, I do a lot of live music making Great. now more than I have in the past year and a half. Because you can um, use instruments safely now. I right? can use instruments again, <laughs> oh, yeah. and I can sing again, and oh, that's just wonderful. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm, I, we're we're able to use instruments, and and uh, you know the 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 members of the group also are able to use instruments if if they feel comfortable, um, you know, uh, being a part of that. If not, that's okay too. You know, there, there's other ways of of being a part of a group. You know, you you can observe the music. You can be kind of take like a, a sound engineer. You know, if, if we're doing. Uh, a recording for self-reflective purposes, um, just kind of like learning music technology. There's just a lot of different approaches and, and things that we can use within um, the, the the music, the musical space, you know, to to help uh, help out with group cohesion, you know, help people feel connected with the experience and to, you know, like feel, feel safe and open to share, um, you know, what it is that they're they're currently going through. What their needs are. Great. And so this kind of ties into my next question, which is how has the pandemic affected your day-to-day -day work? I mean, we talked a little about instruments. I know I wasn't able to use instruments, nor did I feel safe using instruments for a very long time. I'm wondering how that affected your your job in your day-to-day. -day. Oh yeah. So music therapy during the pandemic was something I never had thought about. Um, as I'm sure many of us had never have thought about a scenario where that would, you know, that where that would take place. So certainly like, you know, we weren't singing, we weren't uh, using instruments. Uh, I did a lot of lyric analysis where I would, I would print out lyric sheets. We would listen to music on an iPad and um, you know, People, if they wanted the lyric sheets, they would keep it for their own personal use, but I wouldn't collect it and, and use it again. I mean, once again, that's just, you know, um, 
no shared materials. Um, but that was a good chunk of uh, my interventions as a, as a music therapist, really. Uh, that was quite a challenge to, to get through. And uh, I could certainly also speak just in terms of like, you know, the LTSR's experience, uh, you know, with the pandemic too. If, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, thinking definitely. a lot of day programs also closed and like the ability to go to things like the flower show, which was like postponed this year to be outside. And it's the Philadelphia flower show, if you don't know, is like a huge, uh, a huge deal. I go every year with my mom. So I just went this past Friday. Um, but it's, it's like a huge deal. And it was outside this year because of the pandemic. Hmm. Yeah, so those things, you know, the residents or, or I mean, nobody was able to really partake in, but that, that was a huge change for, you know, for the residents to, you know, to be on these outings, go to day programs, and then suddenly be in a secure facility and not quite experience in person what's going on outside in the world. Yeah. Like they, they, hear, they hear feedback from us, you know, from the staff that come in. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to keep it together day by day, trying, you know, trying to provide that information without, you know, being, or, you know, like being afraid really uh, of just coming in and, uh, you know, they, they just, they listen to the news, like that's really their only source. Um, and, you know, for, for some of the folks, like, uh, you know, trust, is a, is a big issue when, you know, you can't actually be out there and see it firsthand and, and people wearing masks and things like that. Like that, that was a huge change actually, Matt, you know, wearing masks, wearing eye protective, uh, you know, gear and, and the residents there like have done a phenomenal job with wearing masks. And, you know, we did a lot of work, a lot of health education, explaining, you know, saying how important it is, how, how by wearing a mask, you know, you're, you're taking care of yourself and you're also taking care of, your neighbors and, you know, the people next to you. And we, we had to adapt. We had to, once we were actually able, we did, we were in a, a quarantine um, place for probably a little bit over a month, I think. I, I'm trying to really recall, but, um, and that, that was tough. So there was a lot more like individual sessions, just sitting outside people's doors and connecting with them individually, which actually, I mean, in some sense, like having that individual time really, um, really helped with the rapport and, and kind of gave a, a little sense of comfort, I think, you know, knowing that, you know, we're, we're still, we're still connecting and especially with, with, with people that experience schizophrenia that uh, or other form of thought disorders, like being isolated in a room for a long period of time is, is very hard, um, you know, especially for a lot of folks who, who hear increased voices or, or, you know, visual hallucinations within, within a room. So that, that, you know, that was something that, um, that, that was the one constant, I think, you know, staff really showed up and, and continued to provide support in, in a different sense, because we weren't able to facilitate groups for a long time. You know, when we did, we only could do like maybe five people to a room because we would create, you know, things that were socially distant, like the, the chairs would be six feet apart. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of adapting um, and a lot of just trying to keep that engagement piece going and, and to help people really feel productive through a really difficult time. Matt, you're talking about 
you know, coming back in after seeing the news yourself or just seeing how the world looks, that's really, that really speaks to what I disliked the most about inpatient psychiatric care was being able to be out in the world and experiencing things and then coming back and just having to report it. Like I, like I remember choosing to take off my, like I voted sticker because we weren't able to get everybody absentee ballots in, or, you know, come in and talk about what the Eagles parade was like, because maybe I, you know, I was working, I was, um, I was able to not work that day. And it's, that's one of the hardest things about those places. I mean, obviously where you work, it's not always like that, but just having to go and report, like give a secondhand story about what's going on in the world for people. That's so, that's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. That was something I definitely recognized as well. I mean, even, even the, even the, the simplest things that we, we take for granted, like going to Duncan or something, you know, I, I wouldn't bring a cup of Duncan in the facility because right. I, I don't want that reminder. Um, you know, they're going through enough as it is. So, um, yeah, yeah, there is, it was, it, it was definitely, um, like you said, like, like kind of reporting what's going on was, was really, really challenging to, um, help, help make sense of it all for, you know, for, for the residents. I can imagine. How is your personality represented in your therapy? Um, so I think some of my, my personality qualities, I, I'm a very calm person. Um, I like to keep an even keel at all times. Uh, you know, and I, I do, I do consider myself open and, and one, one quality I really value is just being humble. Um, you know, being humble to, to different experiences and learning new things. And, um, also, uh, you know, I, I definitely incorporate humor, uh, into, into my practice. It's needed, you know, laughter is a really good medicine. Um, and, uh, of course, like, you know, being a music therapist, like that's, that's part of my personality, the creative aspect. Um, also just being nerdy, uh, that's certainly a big thing. You know, I, I was just talking about 80s cartoons today, actually, <laughs> uh, in the milieu space. And, you know, that that has a lot of therapeutic value to, um, you know, to sharing an experience with someone. What 80s cartoons are you talking about? Oh, boy. Which ones were we not? Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, TMNT. Um, we, we were talking about Transformers, Voltron, Thundercats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really uh, I could I could go on <laughs> that's great um and you did speak a little bit to both of these both of these things but what is the most difficult thing about being a therapist to you and what is like the best thing about being a therapist to you yeah so I would say the the most difficult things about being a therapist are like kind of like the more logistical things for me um as a music therapist certainly like memorizing things, particularly songs, has just been so incredibly tough. Uh, I think even before, and I, I kind of just like share this experience as well, like, you know, I, I had COVID back in January of like two Januarys ago, like right when it first um, started. Oh, and, and uh, you know, coming out of that, it's actually affected my memory. And, you know, my memory before was a lot, wasn't good to begin with. So, um, I, I did find, you know, memorizing lyrics to songs being incredibly frustrating. Um, and I understand, you know, the, 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 the need not to have papers in front of you um, in order to kind of enhance that, you know, intersubjective ex experience that, um, you know, shared experience. Um, 
that's been, I think the most difficult thing for me as a, as a therapist in general right now is, is, um, you know, being able to memorize that sort of thing. Um, as well as just kind of like the preparation part as a, as a therapist. I mean, certainly, you know, you can, you can be prepared, but also be prepared to throw out the preparations (laughs) at any given moment. So, you know, uh, you know, as, as a creative arts therapist, you know, to be a flexible thinker, to be on your feet. Um, and that, that can be a challenge, but more of an exciting challenge, I think for, for me at times. Um, and, uh, the other, I mean, the other difficult thing too, uh, that I find is, is just working within the current mental health system and it's, you know, God awful state, uh, that it's in right now. Uh, and also, you know, just talking with a lot of the residents on like why they, why there's no same day discharges, um, you know, to talk about their involuntary statuses or, or, um, you know, supports that may not be in place. Um, those can be hard conversations to have, um, and to process. So, um, I would say though, yeah, that would be kind of like the difficulties as, as a therapist, um. And in terms of things that I love, I mean, celebrating the small things, you know, I, I always in, in my sessions, I, I always say that, you know, showing up is the most important part. When you show up, like you have already like done something phenomenal for you and for others too, you know, your presence in the group uh, makes a difference, you know, whether, whether you see that or not. Um, so I, I enjoy being able to celebrate those those small things, what we would consider small things, um, as being pivotal. And also I, I really, you know, when, when others are, are in, in a space where, or where they can self-reflect and begin to like identify some of the strengths that they have that can also be supported through the music, um, that those are really awesome moments. I, I think, um, you know, when, when they do self-reflect through the music, could be through songwriting, could be through just conversations in between songs, whatever the case may be. Um, and also just uh, something I love about being a therapist too, is just the creative process of creative process of music. And also that I, I found out that there is such thing as geek therapy. <laughs> just going to put a little plug out there. Never, never heard of that before. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, geek, therapy is also known as like therapeutic and applied geek gaming. Um, that is a certification that I may actually pursue at some point in time. Um, definitely share those details. Yeah. That's that really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's awesome to hear, uh, you know, therapists out there that, you know, use anime that use gaming, that use tabletop role-playing dungeons and dragons, um, things like that to, you know, connect, uh, with, with others, uh, it's really, really cool frontier. And so I remember the last time I went to PAX Unplugged, there was like a big talk about therapy and gaming and I missed it. I was like standing in the line and I didn't get to go, but that sounds super interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's a, a pretty big following, um, and, and this really, a really supportive community there. I think, I believe there's so like a cool. Facebook, uh, group too that, yeah. Geek therapy. It's out there. We're out. We're out there. We exist. (laughs) Matt, I had, I had like an acute emotional reaction to you talking about the, the effects of COVID that you've experienced. I, that's so, I mean, on so many levels, I, 
it's so important for us as therapists to kind of understand the suffering, but when we have to experience it ourselves and we have to have our own limitations, it's, it's really fucking unfair. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> necessary words really. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, that was a really tough experience. You know, I, I spent, I think, I think at the time, um, you know, uh, CDC guidelines had me, you know, in my home for three weeks, um, right. away from work for three weeks. And uh, yeah, it's just tough kind of coming back. And then, you know, the, the residents knowing, the, the staff kind of knowing something's up, something's yeah, going on. Yeah. Um, especially when it was just, it's very new. I mean, you know, cases started coming out, I believe like December of, of like the prior 2019, year, 2019, right? Yeah. 19. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So, but not even here, right. I think November and December was abroad and then we had mm -hmm. our first cases late January. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no. So yeah. Kind of addendum there. Actually, I, I believe I had it when I was, it was in March. So it was like a little bit after oh, okay. that. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But still though. I yeah. can remember just that brain fog when I had COVID. I think I got it around the end of March, 2020. And I like, I had to cancel a flight because like I wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, and I couldn't do it. I like could not put together the steps to cancel this flight. It was just too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Yeah. Like that, that fog is very real. Um, and it, it, I mean, it differs too from, from person to person, whether that fog lifts, um, yeah. you know, the long-term effects we're still kind of trying to understand and, and figure out. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, even as a music therapist, you know, you, you learn to adapt. I mean, you know, uh, Im improvisation is kind of my jam, uh, you know, know, know your strengths and, and know how they mm -hmm. play out in, in, a, in the therapeutic dynamic. Um, yeah. If you don't mind me asking, how was your voice? So my, my voice had, changed too and I, I think I mean may, maybe some of that was due to COVID um, some mm -hmm. of the respiratory uh, symptoms but at the same time I'm wondering too if that was just not singing for an extended period of time yeah you know your your voice kind of uh, goes out of commission for a while so um, I, I do actually you know I, I feel like I, I have gotten my voice back some and I'm forever grateful to um, the, uh, my, my all male chorus that I, I sing with, um, written house sound. Yes. Really great group. <laughs> great group of guys. Yeah, nice um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, they, we, we did some virtual recording and at the time I was really hesitant to, uh, put my voice out there again, just because of the changes. But, um, you know, the, the, the guys were really supportive of me and, eventually I put in the recordings and, you know, I feel really good about that. So I feel that that was kind of a, a conduit to get for me getting back to singing again and just finding my passion. That's great. Absolutely. So Matt, why are you a therapist? You know, what drew you into this? Was there an inspiring moment or series of things that happened in your life? Yeah. So I, I think it really all, uh, it's kind of like a domino effect, maybe, maybe not a domino effect, but like kind of building up to it. Um, I, I do also have to say that, you know, my, my mother is a huge role model in my life and, uh, you know, she is a teacher, uh, you know, she, she, um, 
works in the school systems for, um, you know, autistic kids and, and other, you know, children with intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities. Uh, and she also has had her undergrad in music education. So she's a musician. And um, I feel like those two parts, uh, you know, growing up were just kind of inherently in me, uh, you know, thanks to my mother. And I, I've always been in the helping profession. I've been a paraprofessional in school systems. I've been, um, uh, you know, a, a day habilitation program director for some time. Um, and it, it never really kind of, it never really clicked with me um, that, you know, music and therapy can coincide um, until like, I think like my late twenties. And uh, so I, yeah, that was really when I pursued music therapy, knew a little bit more about it. And, uh, you know, Drexel drew me in uh, on my 30th year around the sun. <laughs> and, uh, you know, here, here I am. Yeah, they drew us both. <laughs> they drew <laughs> us all in. They got us. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and, and then kind of like going from there too, just thinking about, you know, Jung's concept of the wounded healer. Um, one thing, you know, I, I can certainly disclose, like I have experienced depression for many, many years. And I, I know what it's like to, to go through that and to really sit with it and feel like that there's no way out of it. So being able to process that and also, you know, once going into grad school and further understanding, uh, you know, some, some of the reasons why, you know, I, I've been depressed or why I'm experiencing this, like I, I was able to you know, use that in, in a therapeutic framework um, to those who may be experiencing depression or anxiety or, or any other number of symptoms. So the concept of the wounded healer, you know, really does speak, it really does resonate with me. I wish that Young on a personal biographical sense was spoken about more. He's one of the most fascinating people you can read about. And his, his, the biographies that speak about just his childhood experiences that bring about his values and his just personal roles. It's very inspiring. I'm glad you brought him up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Matt, what, this is a twofold question. What do people, what are people's reaction when you tell them you're a therapist and then a music therapist? And when do you choose to tell people that you're a music therapist? So you sing for people. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, I get that question. I also get, um, are you analyzing me? Yep. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, for those questions, like, yeah, part of, part of my position is singing with people and people singing with me um, and experiencing the music. So yeah, I, I, I do get that question. Um, as far as me analyzing folks, like I am, there, there are times when I'm off the clock and I just want to be me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as, as far as like reactions go, like I, I just, I, I love it when people have a genuine interest. Like there are some people who are genuinely interested in music. Uh, they, they kind of describe a little bit about their relationship with music. And I, I think that's a wonderful thing. And that's a really great way to kind of tie in, you know, my, my work uh, into the conversation. Um, and 
you know, as far as what I want their reactions to be, I mean, I just, I, I love it when people bring up the questions like, okay, like ask me if I sing yeah. with people or sing, sing, but like, yeah, like, like show me, show me some curiosity, show me some intrigue. I, I, I love that. I can work with that. Um, as well as like, I mean, really one of the most important things is like, ask me questions so that I can help break the mental health stigma. Like let's openly talk about mental health, just about as much as we openly talk about going to the gym or, you know, the uh, weather, the weather, the weather, right. Mental health. Like let's make it a part of the conversation. Let's, let's talk about it. Um, so yeah, all of those things, any, any kind of question, just asking what I do. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to take that as a, as a nuisance or annoyance. I, I love that stuff. Ask me questions. <laughs> That's great. How has your identity helped or hindered your practice? And I mean, including racial, ethnic, sexuality, gender, all that fun stuff that makes us who we are. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I can certainly, you know, bring up some, some different identities that, you know, either, either help or hinder. Um, one thing that I, I really have focused on, especially within the past couple of years, um, more so now than ever, is just my own identity as a white male therapist. Um, I, I do a lot of kind of self-reflective processes with that, um, especially working in, in a place where most of the residents are, are people of color. And just knowing that being a white male therapist in that space can, you know, pro potentially be harming. Uh, and, and this goes, this goes like way beyond the present time. Um, there's just years of, of instances of, of, um, of racism, of oppression, of, you know, social and systemic injustices, and it's all related to white men. So I, I do, you know, I have included a lot of lot more conversation about race, uh, about about gender within, you know, within the kind of the therapeutic milieu. Um, I believe those conversations are incredibly needed, incredibly, incredibly overdue. Um, and, you know, I, I, once again, this kind of brings brings in like cultural humility as well. Like I, 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 I recognize that, you know, I've made missteps in the past and I, I probably will make mistake, you know, missteps in the future, but that shouldn't prevent me from wanting to grow as a person. Um, and so having these open conversations with, with, with residents, with even, even with the staff, like it's, it's just really needed. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. You're, it's, it's really overcoming that fragility that is, hard for us, I think as white clinicians in general, and I can imagine the challenge for white men is different, but just overcoming that immediate reaction of, no, I'm not, I'm not wrong, or no, I didn't do that, or no, I didn't, what I did wasn't harmful and understanding that it's not up for you to decide. That's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and guys, like rather than being defensive about it, like, like ask yourselves, why, why are you being defensive? Like, let's, let's go beyond that. Like, you know, gentlemen, let's, let's, let's kind of dig deep a little bit more, you know, think about why, why we're being defensive um, and, and really take it as just a moment to, to learn, you know, we, we, we've all made past mistakes, but let's, let's grow from it. Um, yeah. 
yeah. So that, that's a big, that's a kind of a big piece right now that's in my work. And as well as, um, you know, on other extents, like thinking more, more about like intersectionality, um, you know, class, uh, uh, you know, how that affects me as a therapist uh, growing up in, you know, lower to lower middle class um, setting, rural area, um, and, and how that plays, how that plays a, a role into coming into Philadelphia almost 10 years ago as a white male therapist. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a, a lot of, a, a lot of, um, you know, individual learning as part of the process. Um, and also being aware of all of the power that comes in with a therapeutic relationship. Like you mentioned, bringing mm -hmm. in a Dunkin' Donuts cup signifies power. Like, like having keys around your neck signifies power. Having an iPhone in your pocket signifies power. And then all the other institutionalized racism and power dynamics that come along with being a white therapist in an institutional setting too. So it's really important to have conversations and keep it in the forefront of your mind. Yeah, absolutely. And just thinking about like, who, who were the people that, that ran those institutions back then? So, so I, I can understand when somebody has, you know, I, I've been, I've been called names before in sessions and that, and that, that doesn't bother me. Like I, I completely understand why someone would have that response towards me um, because they, they may have experienced something in the past that, you know, is, is traumatic and just me being there um, can, can sometimes trigger that. And so, you know, I, I want to have those open conversations. I want to have those candid conversations, um, within, you know, within the therapeutic space. Yeah. From an analytical approach, you're, you're allowing them to reenact and not have a traumatizing end to it. So if you, you know, you not becoming defensive and you not giving into fragility really gives them an opportunity to work through that trauma, whether it feels good or not. It's a great opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, and that's that's all, like I said, once again, that's been really prevalent in the, at least the past couple of years uh, of, of my practice. I mean, it, it was there, I think, a little bit before, but, um, you know, not nearly as much of a focal point as, as it should be. So, um, yeah, being able to kind of take my own personal time to address my own reactions, my own fragility, um, you know, it, it does in the long run, um, you know, as, like I said, as, as therapists, you know, there's a tenant of do no harm. Right. Yeah. And that should really, that should really be a part of your process when, you know, you're, you're, you're in a, a, a place of power. Um, so yeah, that, that self-reflective piece is just so, so needed. Matt, I could talk about this with you for an hour. I, yeah. You are you are such a yeah. credit. You are such a credit to what you identify as. I just working in private practice, I've encountered a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, white men who have not have not made that jump, have not done that work, and it's it's very discouraging. So this is, I'm actually really loving this. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you completely. And I, I would love to talk more about it. I mean, yeah, it's it's a journey. It's a journey. You gotta gotta go with it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't fight it. Don't fight it, guys. <laughs> nice. And, and, and it can feel overwhelming because once you start going of like the clothes you're wearing is like part of your power, the way you walk in the room, it's, you know, it's like, but it's so important because it can do so much harm. Like you were saying, Matt, that like you really have to be self-reflective and continue to work on yourself 
in all different aspects. I did a hand motion up. <laughs> different categories. Way, way up high. The gamut. Way tall. <laughs> yeah. I just yeah, keep doing yeah. it. I can't stop. <laughs> For the listener, she is doing it. Here goes. Oh my god. Going going the distance. <laughs> so I'm gonna switch right. gears a little bit and ask you about self-care and how you approach it. Um, and maybe how it's changed or not changed during the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when it comes to self-care, and this was something that I, I've, I've kind of adapted over the, over the course of the pandemic is, is you know what, like I, I picked an aspect of my health. There, there are many aspects of one person's health. And sometimes when you focus on those aspects, they can like instantaneously become overwhelming. Uh, so, you know, I thought to myself, why not pick one? So I, I did, like, I actually uh, met with a registered dietitian, um, you know, cause I, I did feel myself like when I, if I, if I come home and I find myself like eating a lot um, related to stress, that's something that has happened in my past, especially in my twenties. Uh, and, you know, that, that was something that was, uh, you know, certainly damaging to my health. Um, and it was something that I hadn't really addressed until uh, my thirties, but um, yeah, like mindful eating has been something that um, I've been, I've been focusing on and, and also making self-care as part of your routine, like as routine as brushing your teeth. Um, you know, don't, I, I, you know, I, I'm thinking like, you know, I, I don't engage in self-care just when I need it. Like I, I, I want it to be a part of my routine, you know, I, you know, like, like brushing my teeth. I, I don't want to stop brushing my teeth and then have to go to the dentist because I'm, I'm not doing it. Like I, I want this to be a routine. So sometimes like, you know, if, if I'm feeling um, lethargic or, or if I, if I do feel depressed, like um, I, I'm, I'm just thinking of one of the skills from uh, DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy. DBT. <laughs> woot woot. Uh, yeah. Opposite action. Um, yeah. That, that's a tough one for me. That's, that, that, that was always so, a tough one. It's so hard. <laughs> can, can we break it down a little bit for the listeners and the third member of this interview who doesn't know what that is? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So like opposite action is literally doing what you're not doing. Uh, right. Like it's, it's so, so if I'm, if I'm feeling lethargic, I need to find an action to do that will counteract what I'm doing. So like, let's, let's start, let's, you know, start with the basics. Like if, if I'm, if I'm feeling, I don't have a lot of energy, I'm feeling depressed, I'm in bed, like just, I'm going to choose to put my feet on the ground. Right. I'm going to feel if, if there's a carpet beneath, I'm going to feel the, I'm going to feel the rug you know, I'll, I'll feel the bed sheets as I'm, as I'm, you know, making my way up and out of bed. Maybe I'll choose to take a shower, just, you know, small things that can, can steer the ship in a different direction. Right. So I, you know, rather than just remaining in bed, keeping that ship on course, um, you know, I'm going to find an opposite action to, to try and change the trajectory of how I'm doing that day. And so, um, this is one thing I, I wish I had like um, uh, a dance movement therapist here right now, but like <laughs> movement, <laughs> movement has been more a part of my life this past year and a half than it has in a lifetime. I mean, I, I used to take creative uh, dance lessons as a kid. 
Um, but like, I, so I kind of like, I feel like I, I reattached to that or like reconnected with that, but yeah, movement is such a big part. Like, like I don't call it exercise. It doesn't have to be exercise. It can be any kind of movement, like just to kind of get, you know, get in a groove. Um, so that's, yeah. One thing that I would do if I'm just feeling lethargic or I'm feeling down is to opposite action, find a way to move. Um, and if I, if on the other side of the spectrum, if, if I am needing my mind to slow down, um, if I have a lot on my mind, if I'm juggling geese at the moment, like if there's too much, right, that's a reference for any Firefly fans out there. Um, <laughs> I only saw uh, the movie Serenity, but I watched right? it, but I they're can't connected. even remember. Yes, they are connected. Yeah. I know that. Yeah, wash juggling geese. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, so if I need my mind to slow down, I will listen to ASMR. Uh, I love ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> can I, can I go on a spiel with it for a little bit? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, also let cool. us know your favorite channels and we'll put them on our resources page. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So ASMR, get, get ready for this like huge conglomerate phrase, um, is autonomous sensory meridian response. And what that is, is, you know, when you hear a sound that, that is captured by a microphone that picks up really intimate details on the sound, right? Your, your brain reacts to that sound and sends signals or like sensations. Sometimes people experience it throughout their entire body or parts of their body, or some people, um, the community calls it tingles, right? They, they might experience tingles. Um, you know, for, for me, um, I, I experience it like, I guess like sensations, uh, in my head. Um, I, I feel an immense amount of relaxation, um, and calmness. So if I, if I need to, you know, stop my wheels from grinding too much, I will listen to ASMR and that can include things like, you know, as simple as like tapping sounds or crinkling sounds, or, um, you know, I, I've, I've seen channels with like cooking ASMR, which is so freaking awesome. Um, like the sound of like a boiling water or, or like, you know, chopping an onion on, on a wooden board. Like, you know, it's, it's all about like the surface and the texture. And yeah. Yeah. So, um, but anyways, everybody, you know, responds to it differently. It's, it's really interesting that the scientific community has kind of like brushed it aside. There's not a whole lot of research to it. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's a cure-all, certainly not a cure-all, but like, but man, it, it works. It works wonders if I need to get to sleep or if I need to like stop myself from thinking too much. Um, so cooking ASMR, I would listen to like Nino's Home. I, I, I love, I, I love his YouTube channel. Um, there is role play ASMR. Ooh. Um, Okay, so so Goodnight Moon, a shout out to Goodnight Moon. I love her channel. Um, she does out. she does like like twenties flapper ASMR. She does um, she has like a, a Valley Girl personal attendant to like cater to your needs ASMR. It's like it's like oh. really really like different kinds of um, role play ASMR. Um, and she's phenomenal with like the, just the, the, the props, the presentation, the makeup, like it's really, and she has a wonderful voice. Um, 
too. So yeah, yeah. Good night, Moon ASMR. Um, there, when there you, is a. Oh, sorry. When you said role play, I thought you meant Dungeons and Dragons, which is what my ooh. Is. Well, there, there could be. <laughs> there, there could be. You never know. Like Joanna, I thought you were being you saucy. I'm glad we. No, I was genuinely excited. <laughs> I'm trying to get into Dungeons and Dragons right now. Um, Matt, the the meridians that's that's talked about a lot, like the neurological effects of yoga that it has on the body. They talk about the meridian used to have to like stimulate emotional releases mm. of pent up energy in the hips and in the spine, and that's that's so cool that these are closely related. I had no idea. Yeah, that, that's pretty sweet. Like, yeah, yeah to just to think like where the tension is stored, yeah. and and how to yeah, I mean, life is tension and release. Like, how do you release that? Uh, mm. Yeah. So. Um, Nice. Yeah, there, and there's many, many others. I, I can always like mention. Yeah, it. send us some. Absolutely, yeah. please share that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll pay it forward. Cool. Uh, what is a guilty pleasure of yours? Now we're talking guilty, not like I eat too much ice cream sometimes. Hmm. So I, I was really like wondering, like you know, thinking about guilty pleasures. Like I, I don't really feel too guilty about <laughs> experiencing pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you say it like that, yeah. Or maybe just like a pleasure. I don't know. I'm just trying to, I think you're right, Matt. Like as we were coming up with, because Sarah and I, Sarah and I have been sharing uh, our guilty pleasures along and I'm like, I have a lot of things that I take pleasure in. So I guess I'll just say those. I don't know if I feel guilty about them. Yeah, but- it's, it's- now that I think about it, it's a very puritanical question. Like, what gives you <laughs> pleasure, and why should we, why should we flag you? Why should it not it? give you pleasure? <laughs> okay, so what is a pleasure of yours that maybe you don't talk about all the time? Because you might feel a little <laughs> okay, embarrassed. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> so, so yeah, some things that that might be a pleasure of mine that might, I, I guess I should say might not be shared by everyone. Um, mm-hmm. I I love the horror genre. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I love being scared. Uh, I like, like, in, um, I, I just, it's amazing. Like the human depths of horror and like the supernatural. Um, I just, I, I love that. I, I absolutely love to dig into, uh, you know, the horror genre, not, not only just for movies, but also like, I, I, I play like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons games that are horror related. Like, um, I'm currently playing alien, um, uh, RPG virtually and it's uh, pretty pretty scary. <laughs> I, I'm laughing because I just watched all of those movies for the first time. Ooh. All of the alien films. Yeah, I, th- those are those are intense. What was the last horror movie that you watched, Matt? And I'll share mine. After. The last horror movie I watched was The Gin. It just came out. And it reminded me of if if uh, Home Alone was set in a horror setting, mm. so like real sense. life, like the people breaking in would like, like, like if, if Kevin McAllister, <laughs> if, if Kevin McAllister were battling a demon, then that's what this movie would be what? like. Can you spell the title of it? Um, D J I N N, the Jin, uh, and that just that just came out because I, I was actually just the other day I was like, hey, I haven't watched a horror movie in a while. So um, cool. Yeah, so that that's one of my one of my pleasures, and and also I I will put in um, a word for Dawson's Creek, The O.C. and Charmed, in particular. <laughs> yes. Charmed, yes, I love Charmed. So uh, 
That's amazing. Matt, yeah. do you watch any of the Ari Aster movies like Hereditary or um, Midsommar? Yeah, yeah, oh. I've yeah, I watched Hereditary, Midsommar. Um, um, oh, what was that other one um, with the the dance? Um, ooh, I don't know. Another Aster one or from his studio? It may have been from his studio. Uh, yeah, not. Lighthouse came from it. I'm not sure what else, but oh, um, like, Lighthouse was really yeah. That was with Willem ooh. Dafoe. I think yes. wasn't it? Yeah. I, yeah. I think only saw part of that one, but I even was thinking about how creepy hereditary was today. Just like just thinking about I think it. about that movie all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it was so creepy. I had to like first of all, when I saw it, I really had to pee, which is like the worst case scenario. I have like a lot of anxiety about going, like mm-hmm. having to go pee and like being in a place where it's not socially acceptable to. And yes. um <laughs> yep. I was at uh the Riverview Plaza Theater, which no longer exists uh, here in Philly, (laughs) leaving us with like one movie theater now. And uh, it it like it smelled like gas because it was like right next to that restaurant that's right there. And I had to pee so bad. It was just like increasing my anxiety. And it's such uh, it's such an anxiety provoking movie. I just remember being so uncomfortable the whole time. I've just shown that scene to people. Yeah. You know that scene. I've just shown the YouTube yeah. clip of it because I just need everybody to know how <laughs> upsetting it is. No, it's, I should stop doing that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sarah, that's your guilty pleasure. Yep. <laughs> like non non snuff films, but getting the same reaction from people. Yeah. 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 yeah Terry would do that. that and that and is Suspiria. The, the scene I was oh. thinking of. Suspiria. Uh, the the remake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, Joanna, have you watched Suspiria? No. Terrifying. Yeah, Dakota Johnson. She she trained dancing for like three years to do the film. She's like, she's an actress now, so that's cool. But yeah, very very good scary movie that takes place in is it? It's like right after World War II, mm-hmm. Germany. It's, oh, it's bleak in every good. sense of the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Black Swan times fifty. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, big time. Oh. Speaking of that, the last horror movie I saw was The Empty Man, which kind of came out, I think it was like filmed in 2017 and got put on a shelf to be released in 2019 and then the pandemic happened. Um, it was very creepy uh, and very like, like... Empty Man up. What? I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, it, it was like very um, mind-bending and like unsettling in many ways i will check that out <laughs> what a good tangent this was yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of transitioning into our lighter questions yes did you rent it on prime sorry um i think we still get we still get physical netflix dvds <laughs> so um it was a physical netflix. netflix still does that wow yeah i think it's just my husband that does it so <laughs> okay perfect keep it on well, yeah, not, he's not keeping them in business. They're in business. They, they're pretty good. <laughs> they're fine. <laughs> so, Matt, what is a you've given us so many resources that we're going to add to our resource page. But is there any other resource that you think any everybody should know about? Uh, yeah, so I, I you know, I, I did give that some thought. And, and certainly, I mean, I, I know it's been said before, but you know, it's been a difficult year and a half plus like National Suicide Prevention Hotline, you know, 1-800-273-TALK. Um, it's also, uh, I think Logic has a song out uh, about it as well. Uh, it's 
certainly an important resource to have, you know, just to know that there, there as, as Fred Rogers, you know, once said in, in times of, of, um, you know, turbulence, you know, seek out the helpers, they're out there, you know, reach out, um, you're worth it. Um, so certainly that, that, um, resources is needed. Um, and also just, um, another one that I, I had thought about was the Southern Poverty Law Center, SPLC, um, something that, uh, you know, is, is near and dear to, uh, just kind of what I'm aligning with and, and, um, you know, their, their work, um, you know, certainly with, with fighting hate, you know, like monitoring hate groups and, and education and justice, um, you know, seeking out justice. Those are really, that's really an important organization to, um, to, um, be involved in. Yeah. All right. That's great. I haven't heard of that. I'm glad you brought it up. I'm looking at it right now. It's we'll definitely put it up. Yeah. Thank you so much. And so finally our final, which would you choose or would you rather question? Would you rather have access to a time machine or access to a teleportation machine? Ooh. Mm-hmm. Time machine or teleportation machine? This feels targeted, Joanna. This feel this feels like either Back to the Future or Star Trek. And it's I, I'm, in the, I'm a huge <laughs> It's in the deck. I, I'm trying to put it on the camera, but it's too look. This time would... machine. <laughs> it's in the deck. <laughs> You know, I, I, um, I, I would say, I would say teleportation. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Trekkie fan and I don't know, just be, just being able to teleport. Um, I'd imagine that would really like save the environment as well. Like not <laughs> yeah. having to have vehicles that spew out, you know, carbon emissions. And I mean, it, it might be a little bit scary at first. I, I think like kind of dematerializing and then rematerializing. Um, so assuming yep. that teleportation is safe, um, I would be all for that. <laughs> I think if it was a time machine that could, you could like go back and forth, you weren't like stuck anywhere. I don't think that's ever a thing that time machines are known for, but if I could like go back and forth forwards and backwards, then I would choose time machine. I think I'm wondering like, oh, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Oh, no, I, I was just wondering if like a time machine would also be able to like transport you to like a certain place at a certain time because that would be huh. kind of like one up with the teleporter i guess Ooh. i guess if it if we want the teleportation machine and the time machine to be on the same level the time machine's just like you are in your place and you go back in time oh okay right because i feel like that would just be like oh then i'll just take the time location. machine and i'll just like yeah jump to 20 minutes from now in Hawaii, like yeah, that's true. That'd be that'd be OP, really overpowered. Yeah. <laughs> well, having rewatched Back to the Future too recently, I oh, I didn't even realize you're responsible <laughs> for me to travel through time because I've learned that even the skilled time travelers uh, screw things up pretty pretty comically easily. So I'll do teleportation, and uh, I think I'll be okay with it because, like Matt, like you said, it's it'd be weird to conceptualize dematerializing. But it's crazy that we drive two-ton steel machines at very high speeds. I try not to even think about that. So I think I'd be okay with dematerializing. As long as I come together with all my parts. I think there is like a short horror movie that I saw about how like somebody teleported 
dematerialized and then like they were not supposed to materialize as themselves so there were like two of that person walking around whoa like a doppelganger yeah was one of them evil nope i think one of them was very confused interesting (laughs) almost like that arnold schwarzenegger movie too right like stolen identity or something yeah (laughs) That there's a the mad TV galaxy skit. quest too where they they transferred a pig and it came inside out and then it exploded oh, <laughs> oh no yeah time machine yeah, all the way movie. then team time machine <laughs> 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 no <laughs> still on board <laughs> i feel like see i feel like movies with time machines also don't end very well ever ever yeah no because if, if you change something in the past like you're there's going to be repercussions i mean yeah. yeah, and if it was a successful time machine experience, they wouldn't be making a movie about it because it wouldn't have any tension. It would just sure. be like me standing there watching something and then getting back in my time machine and going oh, somewhere what a, else. what a cool thing. Here we go. <laughs> what a journey. <laughs> watching Joanna's home movies again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Matt, for talking with us today. It's been a very thoughtful and deep conversation yeah, I, I really, I'm grateful for our time together. This was, this was definitely, uh, yeah, thought-provoking and enjoyable. Great. Well, stay tuned after the break uh, for our third story section of the podcast. All right, welcome back to the Thera story portion of our podcast. This is a funny or ridiculous story that someone had as a client in therapy or a therapy adjacent funny or ridiculous story. If you would like your Thera story featured on our podcast, send us an email at therapistnextdoor at gmail.com. That's therapist plural nextdoor at gmail.com with Thera story in the subject line of your email. Sarah and I have kind of run out of our Thera stories. So uh, Matt has graciously said that he would provide a Thera story for today. So take it away, Matt. All right. So um, yeah, a little bit of slip of the tongue um, experience uh, during a session. So as I was uh, a music therapist in the uh, in a nursing and rehabilitation center, uh, it was around the time of December holidays, people celebrating the holidays. And of course we have a lot of different sing-alongs with, um, uh, you know, different holiday tunes. And one of them, I was in a a memory care unit. Uh, There was probably about 30 or so uh, folks that were uh, around me. And uh, one of them, one one person wanted to hear, let us know, let us know, let us know. Um, And (laughs) so, uh, one of the verses, and I'll, I'll sing it, I'll sing it as I sang it, just to kind of relive this experience. Uh, <laughs> it, it goes, um, so I, I was playing guitar and singing, and I sang, Oh, it doesn't show signs of stopping, and I bought some porn for popping. <laughs> and I kept going, regardless <laughs> of what I said. <laughs> yeah, I- <laughs> And I think only one one of the residents like caught it and just started like outright laughing, and I was so grateful for that. That's so sweet. 
Oh, that's perfect. There that, you yes. Yeah, the 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 musical mess ups and the lyrical mess ups are definitely the best part about being music therapist sometimes. Yes, yeah. Love it. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the show. Be sure to rate review us on Stitcher and Spotify. You can check us out on Instagram at therapists next door or on Twitter at therapists nd pod all one word. Or visit our website at tndpodcast.com. If you would like the ability to vote on what questions we ask our guests, scripts for our history lesson, and so much more, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tndpodcast. It should be up by the time this episode airs, so check it out. If you would like to submit your Thera story, which again is a funny or ridiculous story that you had as a client in therapy or that's therapy adjacent, for us to read on the show, email it to therapistsnextdoor at gmail.com with Thera story in the subject line. Until next time. We are your your therapists therapists next door. (laughs) (laughs) 